A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Last week, a major politician made a shocking announcement. Well, it shocked me. Arlene Foster, leader of Northern Ireland's ruling Democratic Unionist Party, threw in the towel. The Belfast Telegraph reported this afternoon that 21 DUP MLAs, four MPs and one peer have signed this letter calling for Arlene Foster to stand down. The party's first ever leadership contest is about to take place. A contest that could shape the future of unionism and of Northern Ireland. Her departure creates a juncture for the DUP and unionism in general. They have to choose which road to go down. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, goodbye Arlene, the state of unionism in Northern Ireland. Politics is a rough business and she knows that. This is Henry MacDonald. I've been a journalist covering the Northern Ireland conflict for about 35 years. He's also currently writing for The Times and The Sunday Times from Belfast. Looking at Arlene Foster in the round, she's went through an awful lot in her life, and I I think that's worth explaining. Understand the early life of Arlene Foster, and you may understand how we all got to this point. So buckle up, because we're taking you back in time to her childhood in the bad old 1970s. She's someone who grew up in one of the cockpits of the Northern Ireland conflict. Arlene Foster is a Protestant, the daughter of a small farming family from the border country. The daughter of a part-time police officer, John Kelly, who, when she was eight years of age, was shot and seriously wounded by the IRA as he was out tending to his ten cows on the family farm. He staggered back to the farmhouse. She witnessed her father bleeding on the floor of their home. 1988, she's going to school on a school bus. The IRA target the bus driver, who's a part-time member of the security forces. She was on the bus when the bomb went off. She's injured, but she survives and survives to give actually her first television interview as a teenager. Yeah, we always sat apart. In fact, everybody sits apart in our bus. And are you going to change that now, Ali? That interview was with a young Jeremy Paxman. Well, I think it's up to the whole bus to change it. In fact, it's up to the whole of the young people of Northern Ireland to change the way and what is happening, to turn against the men of violence. Thank you both very much for joining us. X amount of years later, she's sitting in government with a party that lionises those kind of actions back in the 1980s. The IRA man who shot her father, she says, was a man called Seamus McElwain. And ironically, last week, as she was contemplating stepping down as First Minister, a Sinn Féin member of the Irish Parliament was planning to speak at a memorial to Seamus McElwain and was eulogising his role in the IRA's quotes arm struggle. 
So even today in the 21st century, Arding Foster faces the odd situation where he's sitting in power with another party, one of whose members, a Southern Irish parliamentarian, is eulogising the man that tried to kill her father. The father who she saw stagger bleeding back into her house. Quite. So I don't know many politicians on these islands, or maybe even beyond, who've been in that situation. Before ever she became a powerful politician, she was just a fellow student of Henry's at Belfast's Queen's University. I was working in one of the student papers, a paper called Gown newspaper. So we got to know all the people who were political at the campus. She joined the Young Unionists at Queen's. She was always very pleasant and very helpful. And she worked her way up. She was talent spotted by the Ulster Unionist Party as someone they wanted to promote as one of the younger generation of unionists coming through. There was a kind of a, a slew of them in, in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Their nickname was the Baby Barristers, although she was never a barrister, she was a solicitor. They were young lawyers, people in their 20s, who were the next generation to lead the Ulster Unionist Party. And right up until 1998, the Good Friday Agreement, she was very much a rising star within the UUP, but took a harder line than David Trimble. David Trimble was the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, which had historically been the main unionist force in Northern Ireland. She didn't think that the, the Good Friday Agreement secured things like IRA decommissioning or fully committed the IRA to non-violent actions from now on. And I would imagine her background, her history, would have shaped that scepticism. So she led a group of rebels within the Ulster Unionist Party who were opposing David Trimble's move to get back in the government to, to, to share power in a four or five party coalition, which would include Sinn Féin. And she, alongside Jeffrey Donaldson, the Lagan Valley MP, finally defected in the early 2000s to Democratic Unionist Party. At that time, led by the fire-breathing fundamentalist Protestant Ian Paisley. It was quite a coup for Paisley to woo these young Ulster Unionists that didn't come from the church, didn't come from the traditional evangelical wing or base of unionism. And this represented a, a big opportunity for her, and she was promoted. Eventually, Ian Paisley, who in the meantime had astonishingly transformed himself from rejectionist to peacemaker and endorsed power-sharing, stepped down, and his successor, Peter Robinson, took over. At this point, it was clear to Henry that his old college acquaintance was headed for the top. She had a taste of power. And I remember at the time being on another radio station, talking about her as being the next party leader, which, of course, she subsequently was in 2015. And I suppose uh, the DUP strategists, people like Peter Robinson, still behind the uh, the scenes, saw her as someone who could be a more acceptable face of their form of unionism, could soften the image, you know, a mother a daughter, a victim of the Troubles, someone from a, a small farming background who was articulate. She was incredibly popular. She was mistress of everything she surveyed. This is Sam McBride, the political editor of the Belfast Newsletter. We're the oldest continuously published English-language newspaper in the world. Sam reports on Northern Ireland politics. He's also written a book about a political scandal that helped shape Arlene Foster's career, the Cash for Ash scandal. So Sam's followed the rise and fall of Arlene Foster pretty closely. 
She was somebody who had um, brought the DUP its greatest ever assembly election result. They had won 38 of the um, 108 assembly seats at that point. She was somebody who a lot of us looked at and thought she's going to be the leader of the DUP for a very long time. And suddenly it all fell apart with the cash for ash scandal. This revolved around a renewable energy scheme set up by Arlene Foster in her time as energy minister. Your critics, of course, say your ministerial oversight of the scheme was, frankly, incompetent. And uh, when you were asked to account for your actions, you turned around and pointed the finger at your civil servants. Well, all of that will come out in the public inquiry. Well, that's Mark. what you did. No, well, all of it will come but out in the public inquiry. we know it to be inquiry. the case already. Well, uh, all of it will come out in the public inquiry, Mark. It became apparent that while all of us had been looking elsewhere, um, huge sums of public money had been going to people erroneously, and um, people had been overcompensated, hundreds of millions of pounds of tax payers' money was at stake. There were a whole series, a, really a deluge of um, revelations about the very ugly innards of Stormont and of the DUP. Stormont, if you don't already know, is the name of the imposing Northern Ireland Parliament building set in parkland and also shorthand for the centre of power. Arlene Foster was lucky to hang on there. Many other leaders, I think, would have lost their positions at that point. It, it was a pretty extraordinary situation to go from being so popular to being so unpopular. In the Assembly election following the scandal, the DUP lost 10 of its seats. Unionism, for the very first time in the history of Northern Ireland, lost its majority. That was a massive psychological blow to unionism. And from then on, Arlene Foster has really been mortally wounded in political terms. But within months of that assembly election, UK Prime Minister Theresa May decided on a snap British general election. The leader of Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party is back in Downing Street today, with indications that Prime Minister Theresa May is close to striking an agreement to prop up her minority government. The weakened May government, faced with implementing Brexit in a hostile parliament, needed allies and found one in Belfast. All of a sudden, Arlene was calling the shots. The DUP held the balance of power in Westminster. They had unprecedented control over a British government. They exercised unparalleled influence over European affairs because of the Brexit process at that point. And so it, it really would be pretty unseemly to then dump your leader in those circumstances. So she was in this remarkable situation where for a very long time she was in circumstances where on the outside she was incredibly powerful and yet Closer to home, she was always much more vulnerable than that would have implied. Particularly from the hard right of the party. The significant constituency that has been against Arlene Foster internally within the DUP has been that of the old Paisleyites in, in, in broad terms. Paisleyites, a reference to former DUP leader Ian Paisley, Northern Irish loyalist politician and Protestant evangelical religious leader. Sinn Féin are so... Stain with our blood, and it would take a hundred years to pass before you could acknowledge them as even decent. These are people who are cut from cloth within the DUP that goes back much further than that of people like Arlene Foster. They were concerned in some cases, ideologically, that she was going into liberalising a direction. But a lot of this also centred around basic competency, that there was a feeling that she just wasn't very good at politics, that she was tone deaf to some of her critics. 
There was a sense that she was arrogant. There was a sense of really exasperation, which then began to spread out from these people. Her behavior as one person in the DUP said to me last week was becoming erratic. They didn't know what she was going to do next. She started doing a lot of U-turns. There was growing concern, supported by polling, that with Arlene Foster clinging onto the helm, the unionist cause might lose power in upcoming elections for the first time ever. So there was this coalition against her, which became increasingly dangerous, and she seems to have been really pretty blind to what was going on under her nose. Brexit came to dominate Foster's leadership. And for many, it might be difficult to understand how Arlene Foster and the DUP found themselves in support of a version of Brexit which had the potential to destabilise their cherished links with the mainland. The first thing to remember about the Democratic Unionist Party was it's the original Eurosceptic party in UK politics. Here's Henry MacDonald again. Long before we ever heard of UKIP or Nigel Farage, the DUP were opposed back in the day when Britain joined the EEC in the 1970s. They were one of the few parties that argued against going into Europe. And they were consistently Eurosceptical. And uh, some would say this has come back to bite them because it's created a situation where Boris Johnson, who was meant to be their all-conquering hero, did a deal behind their backs to get GB out of the EU, but leave Northern Ireland in there to protect the Irish border, protect the single market. But in effect, it drew a sort of border right down the middle of the Irish Sea. Which is the main problem for the DUP unionism in general now. In many ways, Arlene Foster's folly is putting too much trust in Boris Johnson. This is not unusual. This has happened before. When James Molyneux was the leader of the Ulster Unionists in the early 1980s, he thought he had a friend, an eternal ally in Number 10 Downing Street, i.e. Margaret Thatcher, who was meant to be the most pro-union prime minister since the Troubles began, not, certainly the most hard line. And yet Thatcher signed the Anglo-Irish Agreement, giving the Irish government more say in the running of Northern Ireland in 1985. So there's a pattern here. What surprised me about Arlene Foster was that she didn't read her history books. And to put faith in Boris Johnson, in terms of being an eternal ally of unionism, was folly given past history. She should have known that. Why did she do that, Henry? Did she do it because he charmed her or because she just believed what she wanted and needed to believe? I think probably the latter. I think not just her, but the DP High Command in general believed that Boris Johnson was an ideological unionist who would not do anything to weaken the union. That he was because he was so adamant about Scotland remaining within the UK that Northern Ireland would be treated the same. I think they genuinely believed that they saw an ally. But we know what happened then. The Northern Ireland Protocol happened, which, if you need an explainer, is this. The Northern Ireland Protocol basically creates border checks at Northern Irish ports such as Larne and Belfast, in which goods coming from Britain, ranging everything from soil to tractors to foodstuffs, are stopped and checked by officials who will see if they measure up the European single market standards. And why is that controversial? By doing that, it prevents a similar arrangement being put along the Irish physical border between the six counties of Northern Ireland and the 26 counties of the Republic, right? Because the Irish government argued in Brussels quite firmly 
that if you start putting border checks on the physical border on the island of Ireland, it, it will in some way lead to more violence, right? In effect, the Northern Ireland Protocol slightly decouples the economy of Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. It could be the thin end of the very wedge that the Democratic Unionist Party was formed to resist, but had now inadvertently played a crucial role in bringing about. Sometimes symbolism, as opposed to substance, has more impact on Northern Ireland, sadly. I mean, that's one of the, uh, the curses that we live under. But the straw that seemed to break the camel's back, an odd straw, you might think, was a vote in Northern Ireland on a motion proposing to ban all forms of gay conversion therapy. Now, that might sound like a pretty strange thing um, on which to depose the leader of unionism, but that was one of the catalysts for this. Here's Sam McBride again. Arlene Foster adopted a stance which really seemed to straddle the fence on this issue. She proposed an amendment to this motion which would soften it, which would take out some of the language there. The DUP voted for that mostly. Um, She voted for that. It didn't pass in the Assembly. Then, as with all parliamentary procedure, they moved to the vote on the main motion. Most of the DUP voted against the motion to ban gay conversion therapy. But Arlene Foster decided to abstain alongside four of her DUP colleagues. And I think we saw in that something of the real Arlene Foster, where she tried to soften this, and once that wasn't possible, she couldn't bring herself to actually vote against this. That really unsettled, angered members of the old guard of the DUP, people who are Paisleyites, people who remember Ian Paisley leading the campaign to save Ulster from sodomy decades ago. That is the stance in which they are more comfortable. They're not necessarily saying it in those terms these days, but that's fundamentally what many of them believe. They couldn't believe that the leader of the DUP would abstain on a motion of this nature. She was annoying everybody on the motion, people who were in gay rights groups, people who were campaigning for the DUP to adopt a different stance in this. So there was a sense here, really, that Arlene Foster was losing control. And yet, despite that, it was still a real surprise when we got to this point um, a week ago where Arlene Foster was facing letters coming in from constituency associations. We reported that on our front page at the start of last week. She batted that away, said, these stories come and go. I've bigger things to worry about. At that very point, as she was dismissing this publicly, her colleagues were meeting in Parliament buildings. They were bringing back in one of the renegade DUP MLAs, Jim Wells, somebody who she had banished from the parliamentary party. There was very bad blood between the two of them. They brought him a cake. It was his birthday that day. And they started plotting as to exactly how quickly they would move. They blew out the candles on the cake, made a wish and within hours had a letter of no confidence in her that 85% of her Assembly colleagues then signed. Not just hardliners to the right of the party either, but other, more progressive colleagues too. It was over, and the following day she resigned. A short time ago, I called my party chairman to inform him that I intend to step down as leader of the Democratic Unionist Party on the 28th of May and as the First Minister of Northern Ireland at the end of June. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Right now, there's a vacancy at the top of Northern Irish politics. And as of this moment, two candidates. The first is Edwin Poots. He was the first person to declare, I'm putting my name forward for the leadership of the Democratic Unionist Party. In fact, he declared when Arlene Foster's political body wasn't quite cold in the grave as somebody who was um, one of the ringleaders in the plot to, to get rid of her. Maybe that's no surprise. I wish to thank Arlene Foster for her dedication and service to the Democratic Unionist Party over the last 20 years. He is somebody who is really a traditional DUP member. He's steeped in the party. His father, Charles Putz, was a founding member of the party. In fact, he goes even beyond that. He was a member of the old Protestant Unionist Party, which Ian Paisley founded before he secularised a little bit by branching out into the Democratic Unionist Party. So these are people who are free Presbyterians. He has been a DUP member at Stormont. He has been a minister for about 15 years. And he is somebody who, on the surface, is incredibly hardline. He is a creationist. He is a Christian fundamentalist. He's a, a, a Paisleyite. He's somebody who opposed as the health minister lifting the ban on gay men donating blood in Northern Ireland. And yet, beneath these hardline views, there's a canny operative. He's somebody who, as a minister in Stormont, has often said very tough things, but quietly behind the scenes got on with the business of governing with Sinn Féin. And so therefore, there is an unknown quantity as to how he will actually govern if he gets to the top in this contest. At the beginning of this week, it was Henry MacDonald who broke the news in The Times that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson had also entered the ring. I want to thank Arlene Foster for her service to our party, people and our country. Today, Northern Ireland enters its second century. 
I'm convinced that in this new century, Northern Ireland's best days are ahead of us. Sir Geoffrey Donaldson is incredibly well-known in Northern Ireland politics. He was incredibly young when he was first elected as the MP for Lagan Valley for the Ulster Unionist Party. He's still only 58. Um, so he, he is somebody who, if he does get the leadership, has potentially got plenty of time ahead of him. Sir Geoffrey Donaldson joined the DUP from the Ulster Unionist Party alongside Arlene Foster on the same day, in fact, in 2004. He, he was somebody actually who began his career as an assistant to Enoch Powell when he was the uh, Member of Parliament for South Down in Northern Ireland at the end of his career. But even though he came from that situation where he might be perceived as incredibly right-wing, um, somebody who still speaks very warmly about Enoch Powell, um, he is somebody who in this contest is certainly seen as a much more moderate force. I think it's fair to say is at the centre of the DUP. He is not somebody, for instance, who is pushing to um, advance the cause of gay rights or legalise abortion or anything of that nature. He is himself a pretty conservative evangelical Christian, but he is somebody who is much more open to how unionism needs to build a broader coalition, go beyond the confines of traditional DUP voters. And as somebody who isn't at heart a traditional DUP voter because he comes from outside the party, he is, I think, better placed to understand those people than Edwin Putz. He is a consummate political operator, very smooth in television studios, very good in radio debates, huge experience, somebody who rarely is um, caught on the hop, somebody who has thought um, for several days carefully about declaring before he has done so. But in the minds of people who um, are backing Edwin Putz, some of them see him as a ditherer. They see him as somebody who had the chance to depose Arlene Foster several times over recent years. There were people who were going to him and believed that he was close to moving against her at various points, ultimately didn't do that, um, and then ultimately didn't sign the letter to depose her. So that, <laughs> for some of those people, counts against him. So if he gets the job, it will be Edwin Poots who managed to organise the vacancy and Sir Geoffrey Donaldson who stepped into it. And even more interesting than that is that not only are these two individuals constituency colleagues in Lagan Valley, they share the same office. They also share that office with a third individual. He's called Paul Given. He's a protege of Edwin Putz. They're very close. He was a former special advisor at Stormont. He is now the favourite to be appointed the first minister if Edwin Putz gets the job. Edwin Putz has said that he will not serve as first minister. He will be party leader, but he will appoint somebody else to be first minister. So you've got this remarkable situation where the Westminster leader, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, the potential uh, leader of the party, Edwin Putz, and the potential first minister all share the same office in their constituency. It must be interesting in that office, don't you think? I'm not sure if they're in the office very much these days with COVID and all the rest of it, but somebody was joking at the start of this week when it was the centenary point for uh, Northern Ireland's creation that it would be a good day in which to partition their office because two of them are going in a different direction to the other one. Complicating the matter more than somewhat is the fact that DUP has never before in its history had a leadership contest. Every DUP leader has been a coronation. Ian Paisley was succeeded by Peter Robinson. He was simply anointed. Um, Peter Robinson was succeeded by Arlene Foster. Again, she was anointed. There was no debate. There were no other candidates. This is how the <laughs> DUP has done its business. So this is a groundbreaking moment for the DUP. The vote to elect the next leader of the DUP will take place on the 14th of May. 
But the voting constituency for this contest is very limited. It consists only of party members who are also members of the Northern Ireland Assembly and the House of Commons. All in all, just 36 people, which makes for a strange battle. When you've got 18 people to get on side, is there any need for a protracted campaign? If you're not having any very detailed campaign and if you're limiting media performances, etc., etc., how much of a campaign will this actually be and how much will this be, you know, really ringing around people with whatever can be offered to them, the chairmanship of a Stormont committee, which brings 12-odd thousand pounds with it, the deputy speaker's role or a ministerial role. I mean, if you've only 18 people to get on board, there probably are bubbles for all of them, I think. And that, I think, is one of the downsides of how the DUP does its business, that actually it suits it sometimes in the short term. It's expedient to have this level of secrecy, um, centralised power. It keeps things very internalised. <laughs> but ultimately, it's not necessarily in its interests. It's not about um, survival of the fittest here. It's really about sometimes survival of he who has the biggest checkbook. Well, exactly. But in that case, you could turn it into a battle of the better bauble if you like, you know, who's... Absolutely. You know, you might offer a bauble to chap X, but actually the better bauble has been offered by the rival candidate. And of course, the checkbook that I'm referring to here is not the checkbook of the candidate, and that would be quite improper. It's the checkbook of the taxpayer, because these are publicly funded positions. And certainly when you talk to people within the DUP, they say that one of the most effective ways of maintaining discipline in the party is not about withdrawing the whip or anything of that nature. It's about saying, well, you step out of line, you lose £12,000. And generally, that's been pretty effective for past DUP leaders. What are the voters making of it all? I mean, has the DUP lost or gained any strength as a result of Arlene Foster going and this process beginning? It's all very anecdotal. But I think that there was a sense that Arlene Foster was on course for leading the DUP into a really disastrous storm and election next year. And so therefore, something had to change from the perspective of, of, of the DUP. It might be worse in the short term. It might even be worse in the long term if the contest goes the wrong way, if the person who comes in doesn't um, turn things around. But it was, I think, inevitable almost that she had got to a point, a bit like Theresa May, where she had just passed the point of no return. It didn't matter what she did. Um, she wasn't ever going to convince enough voters that she was somebody who was competent, who was capable, who was in control of her party, who knew what she was doing. And therefore, this, I think, had to be done from the perspective of the party. So does it make things better for them? I don't think it can make things any worse. The 100th anniversary of the foundation of Northern Ireland happened at the beginning of the week. When you look at the DUP and Arlene Foster, how stands unionism 100 years on from the foundation of the state that they so much wanted? It stands in a paradoxical position. It stands as both undefeated in the sense that Northern Ireland has endured. It's endured against the expectations of most people in 1921, whether they were unionist or nationalist or um, pretty indifferent to the future. Not many people back then thought that partition would last this long. Most people thought that either Northern Ireland would be subsumed into the rest of the island at some point. That was the most likely outcome. Or even some of the most optimistic unionists might have thought that maybe reunification would have happened. The Republic would have come back to Britain. Neither of those things has happened. And actually, Northern Ireland set up as a pretty temporary arrangement has become a very permanent arrangement. So therefore, unionism ought to have a lot to celebrate this year. It has endured. It has won to a certain extent at this point of the game. 
And yet it's in a dreadful position. It is looking at the dismantling of the union this year through the Irish sea border. That is a partial dismantling. It's a dismantling in trade terms, to a certain extent in constitutional terms, in terms of where our laws are now made and how much say we have over that. But also in psychological terms, it is increasingly going to reorient Northern Ireland economically and in terms of how people here, um, even in very practical ways, do their business. It's going to very much reorient things in a southern direction. In Northern Ireland, there is a growing campaign for a border poll a referendum on whether Northern Ireland should remain part of the United Kingdom or join with the Republic of Ireland to form a united Ireland. It's not likely in any way that Irish nationalism is going to win that, even if it gets it, say, in the next five years, probably not even in in the next 10 years. But there is a sense that unionism has been very complacent here. It is losing support. The polls are very clear. The trend is downwards for unionism, and that is really concerning a lot of unionists. It's also become increasingly clear that Northern Ireland's religious makeup has changed in ways that would have confounded its forefathers. This was a state where the boundaries were drawn to avoid there ever being a Catholic majority. It was meant to be really a locked-in Protestant majority in perpetuity. We are now in a year of, of a census, and the expectation is that this census will confirm that for the first time in Northern Ireland's history, there are more Catholics within the state than Protestants. And yet it is something which does not have the significance in political terms and in constitutional terms that it would have had in 1921. To be Catholic is no longer inevitably to be nationalist. To be Protestant is no longer inevitably to be somebody who supports the maintenance of the union. Both of those old religious identities are starting to not quite fall apart, but they are starting to erode. And the constitutional significance of them is starting to erode. The growing group in the middle are centrist voters. They care about other things. They are more interested in, for instance, reconciliation of Northern Ireland's very divided society. They're more interested perhaps in education or healthcare or roads and practical issues than they are in which flag happens to fly over Stormont. And those are the people who are now going to decide Northern Ireland's future whenever a border poll comes. And that's why the choice of DUP leader is so important. The next leader of unionism potentially is the person who leads unionism into a border poll. And even if they don't, they're the person who probably leads unionism pretty close to a border poll. Who is the person who can speak best to those constitutional swing voters, voters who were unimaginable 100 years ago? They're a growing cohort in the middle. And the DUP has not until now mastered how to speak to those people. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich. And my guests, journalists for The Times and Sunday Times in Belfast, Henry MacDonald. You can read more of his work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays and political editor for the Belfast newsletter, Sam McBride. The producer was Leona Hamid, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or just thoughts on what you've heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.